0: It's easy to kid yourself into thinking that's what war is whenever we had this sort of occupation, you know, counterinsurgency war going on, but that's not what war is. War is a test of wills where people are, you know, trying to kill each other. Even if you have some other crazy specialty, the Army needs people who do all kind of wild stuff, but how do we make sure that they all are warriors?
1: Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this episode features a conversation I had with Matt Larson, known in many corners of the Army as the father of modern combatives. He was a key figure in the Army's effort to introduce better and more widespread training in hand-to-hand combat. Any listeners who are in the army or who have been in the last 15 years or more will almost certainly have taken part in the combatist training that Matt helped create. He talks about why he thinks that sort of training is so important, but in our discussion he also talks a lot about this notion of a warrior ethos. What that is and why, as he argues, it's something that needs to exist throughout the entire army, not just in infantry or other combat arms units. It is a great conversation, but before we get to it, really quickly, just a couple things. First, hopefully you're already subscribed to the MWI podcast. If not, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Matt Larson. Uh, Matt Larson, thanks for sitting down and joining us uh, for this episode of the MWI podcast. Uh, I want to start by hopefully this isn't embarrassing you but you've been called the the father of modern army combatives and I guess maybe this would be a good way of kind of introducing your background how did you get that sort of sobriquet
0: well I mostly got it because I was the guy who stuck around um, there's there was a whole lot of people <clears throat> involved in developing the combatives program um, but most of them you know they're soldiers so they, they moved in and out of it and took on other jobs and I was the guy who who sort of st- saw it through the long road. Um, and, you know, just to tell the story a little bit, the combatives program started back whenever uh, General Stan McChrystal was a battalion commander in the 2nd Ranger Battalion back in 1995. And at the t- when he took over, one of the things he wanted to do was was invigorate combatives training, you know, to inculcate the warrior ethos, that sort of thing. And so he ordered everybody to do it. and, and um, and we did. We did what anybody else would have done. We, we busted out the manual. We started doing what the Army doctrine was. And we soon figured out that it was silly. And, um, and so we went back and told him, you know, hey, sir, this is a sort of a waste of time. We'd rather be out shooting or rucking or, you know, anything valuable uh, for training. And he said, well, it's not that combative training is a waste of time, so it must be the method. So then he tasked us to figure out a better way. And Fortunately, I was one of the I was probably the, the you know, the more experienced martial artist in the in the battalion at the time. So so it I sort of came out to be the guy who was in charge of it. it there's more to that story as well. Basically, I was a squad leader at the time and I I started teaching my guys how to ground grapple and you know, they learned it cuz it's easy and pretty soon they could ball everybody up in the platoon so and you know, I was training the platoon and pretty soon the platoon could ball up everybody in the company and was training the company mm-hmm. and that slowly became the battalion the ranger regiment and the whole army.
1: So it was a pretty organic I mean it started it sounds like basically from your squad and what we now do army-wide um, in terms of our combating training really started started there. What was, so you were a squad leader at the, at, in the second ranger battalion at the time
0: um, before that you'd been a marine but you also had a martial arts background so I didn't have any martial arts background as a child, but as a Marine, my first duty station was Tokyo. Yeah. So when I got there, I I knew that if I was lived two years in Tokyo and didn't train any martial arts, that I would have wasted my time. So this is long ago in the 80s, you know, 1985, 1984. And so I trained judo and karate. And interestingly enough, so the karate cost money. So I did that almost religiously every time I every time I was you know, paying for it, I was always there, and the judo was free, so I sort of dabbled in it. You know, so now, 30 years later, I my judo's still not that good, and I <laughs> I feel like I wasted my time. You know, to, not to say that karate is wasted time, but certainly I learn I would have learned a lot more useful things from being good at judo. You had um, you
1: mentioned that that you went back to then presumably Colonel McChrystal and said. Uh, you know, this is a waste of time, and he said, well, it must be the way
0: that we're doing it. What was wrong with the way that the Army was training combatives at the time? Well, the biggest problem in combatives, and this is, well, one of the biggest problems in combatives, it, is that there's 10,000 sources of bad information. So imagine what the manuals, all the way back to when they started being manuals, what, what did they include? Well, they included things that were drafted from civilian martial arts, naturally, But the problem with that is that the the training methodologies and pedagogies of the civilian martial arts are designed around self-motivated people. So imagine if I was running a civilian martial arts school, it doesn't matter what martial art, everybody who walks in the door is self-motivated. And so I don't really have to be much of an expert on training. I just have to know my art, and then people are going to keep coming back time after time. And so those training methodologies and pedagogies, they don't necessarily – mesh with the culture of a military unit or, or members of any institution you know we're not just talking about the army but a police force or anything else they they don't necessarily mesh so just just imagine um, in every reputable boxing gym in the world they teach you the fundamentals of the of the uh, footwork they show you the jab then you throw the jab for a while so then after you've been throwing the jab for you know a couple of weeks or a couple of months you come back and, and you learn to cross and it's this methodical process of learning a physical skill um, that is difficult it's just like learning any other skill if i was if we were trying to teach everybody to play the the violin what would the plan be well we'd show them how to make a note and then we'd they'd start trying it and they'd try it and sound like cats for the first couple of weeks until finally they could make a note so that amount of time is necessary in the traditional ways of teaching martial arts you know from from boxing and muay thai to and and out and so that was what was wrong is it, it was just normal martial arts not designed around the training methodology or not designed around the army culture. And so I would say that's what, what we did differently at that time was the program we designed was organic coming out of the line and, and it worked because it fit within the culture of the unit and, and people really learned to fight from it. You know, when you show somebody something that's real, they know it's real straight away. Um, and then... Everybody got fired up about it because it was real.
1: I want to ask a question that's going to sound maybe kind of trite, but um, if you look back at the history of warfare, and you've got you know thousands of years ago, you know warfare was essentially melee, you know lots of individual fights, and then we moved to um, sort of mass fights with the with the Romans, uh, and eventually to maneuver warfare that we do now. At the same time, particularly over the past couple hundred years, you've had increasing standoff distance with the weapons that we're fighting with. Why is combatants important to the Army today, given
0: those patterns? Well, so that's all true, and it's also all mostly dealing with open warfare. So um, one of the things that's happened in, in modern warfare is that we're, we're going the opposite direction on technique. So, so as the world becomes more and more urbanized, we fight more and more in urban areas. So imagine how many fights in open fields and open terrain were there throughout the entire war in Iraq. It's just not normally what happens in an urban area, and most, you know, most areas of the world are urbanized like that, or at least the ones where people are wanting to fight over. So as you start fighting in built-up areas, that means you're fighting in close quarters with people. So <coughs> imagine how big the average room size was in Iraq, you know, maybe eight or ten feet deep. So that means when you come through the door, you're almost within arm's reach of the person of the, the at the deepest, darkest recesses of the room. The 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 fact that you would end up grabbing somebody if something didn't go quite according to plan or you're trying to manhandle them, much more likely than that, in that sort of environment than it is in open warfare, if you imagine World War II, you know, you know driving across the steppe of Poland or something. You know, at those, at those, that kind of fight, people shoot each other from 10 or 20 or 100 or 200 feet away, um, and that, those spaces are just not there in the open fight, I'm oh, sorry, in the, close, in the urban fight.
1: I think most people, um, when they look at particularly our, our recent wars, you know, people that pay close attention might have heard of one or two incidents where this, these skills have become, you know, have been put to use, have bec- you know, it's been a matter of life and death. Um, I understand that you collected some data from, or you know, anecdotes from, from people who have been engaged in this. Um, is it more prevalent than that? Is it more than just a couple, of, a couple of occasions that this has happened over the past, say, 15 years?
0: Yeah, So it, so... <clears throat> The answer to that is it's more common even than marksmanship. So imagine when was the last time a, a group of U.S. soldiers entered a building when they could shoot everyone in the building? Uh, you know that hasn't happened in quite some time. There's a reason why we have to send soldiers, and that's because you can't kill everybody in the building, or else we would have sent cruise missiles. So what really happens is we send people in, and they have to manhandle people, and and that that happens so often that it's a normal thing. You you don't when was the last time we went into a building where you didn't have to manhandle people and if we expand our definition of combatives to being controlling people physically then combatives is one of the most common things that that does happen um, so I would say that uh, you know if you speak to anyone who was in any sort of clearing operations or you know they will have stories of manhandling people around. Now, they may not have had much training and they may not have had much skill at it. They might have just been more, you know, physically fit people than the ones they were trying to shove around, which also works, by the way. But if they have skills, if they have the skills, then it becomes a quite an easy challenge to animals. So, you know, I'd imagine, too, like the Army has got is a host of tasks, right? A, a, a company, a, a, you know, cavalry company or a infantry company or an MP company they have a list of tasks they have to to do you know in their metal and many of those tasks you know people like to act like you can do them without hand-to-hand combat but you can't so if you're going to be entering rooms that are eight by ten you cannot consider yourself trained at that if you don't have hand-to-hand combat skill because it's inevitably going to happen so you can you can fool yourself into thinking that your unit is trained if you're not doing it but they're not and another good example you know if you if you Say for example, you're going to run a traffic control point. Well, you can do all the aspects of that. Sands hand to hand, but eventually a vehicle is going to come up with that traffic control point. And what if the people in that vehicle don't do what you say? What are you going to do? Because your options are shoot them or manhandle them. So if you're going to manhandle them, it's a whole lot better to be trained at it.
1: You mentioned earlier that um, kind of the, the the unit that you were with when when. Um, this training program, the program that kind of took shape was uh, was the right fit culturally for it. Um, if you, then, as you scaled up, you come across an army culture that's that's fairly different, and um, you know the same it, by the same, in the same way that uh, in in you know when General Shin- Shinseki was um, was chief staff of staff the army, that they you know we kind of adopted this every soldier a rifleman. Um, mantra to kind of I think try to shift that paradigm, shift that, that culture.
0: How does combatives play into that? So if you remember that whenever that, uh, when, when that happened uh, the, when the 507th maintenance unit, the Jessica Lynch's unit, uh, story happened when the unit basically got lost because they didn't know how to do land nav and then they got ambushed and then all their soldiers got killed and captured because they didn't because all their weapons malfunctioned. Uh, General Shinseki was the chief of staff at the time that happened, and, and he had called a what it was called task force warrior at Fort Benning, and I was actually involved in that. Uh, and the idea behind that was how do we get rid of that bifurcated culture where part of, a big large a large portion of the army doesn't think that they're the fighting part of the army. So we did. So a host of things came out of that. But the reason I was involved in it was because combatives was one of those tools that we have. Um, you know, so for example, that's when the Soldier's Creed came out. I was actually brought in by there was a committee of four people who uh, wrote the Soldier's Creed, and they brought me in to be one of the people to help with that. Um, and um, you know, my part was the part about closing in, with the enemy in close combat. But, but uh, with that being said, the the uh, imagine what we can do in order to inculcate the warrior ethos in the army because they did a lot of things that came out of there. For example, they started making everybody in the Army train on how to react to ambushes, and they had live fires were mandatory for a long time, and different you know, basic training and whatnot, um, and they hosted other things like that. But the truth is, it's a, it's a pendulum, right? So, so after that, we had a while where the Army was really focused on making sure that every soldier was, was thinking of themselves as a warrior. But then we spent a decade plus of war where most people's experience in the war zone was essentially, you know, go to your office every day and then back to your chew. You know, in other words, people, most people are a large portion of people who might have served years in the war zones. They're, they didn't see any more combat than the ladies who worked at AFI's. So that's a huge number, a huge percentage of the people who are combat veterans, you know, with with the finger quotation marks, Um, you know, and the the closest thing to combat they saw was mortar rounds landing, you know, half a mile away from them on a huge fob with 20,000 people on it, you know. So, you know, that's, it's easy to kid yourself into thinking that's what war is whenever we had this sort of occupation, you know, counterinsurgency war going on, but that's not what war is war is a test of wills where people are you know trying to kill each other you know think about this transporter you know 88 mics were driving all over the battlefield so that's the people that we used to think were combat service and support people are combat support people well guess what You know, they were the combatants and, and, and no matter what you are even if you're you know unless you're and, and probably even the people like in space command you're driving around the battlefield with a convoy and and a vehicle pulls into the front of the convoy and blows up the first vehicle and the road's blocked and you can't back up, what do you do? Well, all of a sudden you went from being a transporter or, you know, a bulk fuel specialist or you're being in charge of the laundry to a provisional instrument because you now got to get off that X and that's going to mean attacking. You know, that's what you do. No matter what your MOS, when you're ambushed, you return fire and if you can't get out of the kill zone you're gonna die so you most of the time it means turning into the into the enemy and attacking them so how do we make sure that the people who are training i don't know fort lee and fort huachuca and you know other places around the army how do we make sure those people know that's the case and that's them
1: so you've talked about uh being i think technical and literal preparation to be able to succeed if you if you're put in this situation and you've also talked about it being um, important in inculcating this spirit, this, the, the warrior ethos. And, and the two are inextricably linked, to be sure. Um, which
0: one of those do you think is more important? Which one of those contributions that combatives makes? Well, I would tell you that, you know, as the combatives guy, we're not going to win the next war because we're better hand-to-hand fighters, but we are going to win the war because of what it takes to be a better hand-to-hand fighter. And so that, that clearly, that, that um, cultural aspect of inculcating the warrior spirit that is more important by a long shot in fact it's you know arguably the the, the main reason because because large portions of the army you know infantry MPs those people will be hands-on bad guys but there's large portions of the army where most of the people will not be where the numbers of that will be is very small percentages you know what what percentage of the of the people who were logisticians in the army were in something like the Battle of the Bulge where the whole 101st Division became provisional infantrymen. Well that number is, is, is not that great of a percentage, but that doesn't change the fact that that happened and a big group of them had to. So you know, you know, back to that, we were talking about the 507th maintenance unit. How do we make sure that every unit in the Army is doing good weapons maintenance? How do we make sure that every unit in the army? Because the answer isn't just discipline, right? The answer is we have to. Leadership is providing purpose, direction, and motivation. So how do we provide purpose, direction, and motivation to make sure that our soldiers are all well trained on their battlefield tasks? How do we make sure they know how to treat a, you know, an avulsed leg wound or, you know, sucking chest wound? How do we make sure that they know how, you know? We, we make sure that they have those things because we create a culture that demands that you do if you want to be respected. And that's where combatives comes in, you know. Combatives comes in because it gives you a reason. What happens to somebody who doesn't want to do physical fitness training in a unit that has a robust combatives program? Well, they get twisted up and humiliated, you know. How do we make sure that somebody in that unit is you know, in a unit that it's in your face that you're going to be the one doing the fighting? even if you have some other crazy specialty. The Army needs people who do all kind of wild stuff, but how do we make sure that they all are warriors? Well, that's how.
1: We talked about culture, unit culture. We talked a little bit about service culture. Um, If we expand kind of the framework out even bigger and talked about American culture, you've been doing this now for long enough that, have you noticed any changes in terms of you know, the soldiers that we bring into the Army now that, that, you know, have grown up over the past 18, 20 years versus, say, a generation ago. Or maybe if you've looked back, you know, before your experience with this started, has, are we producing, um, are, are new recruits um,
0: more or less predisposed to sort of embracing this? Well, I think every generation thinks the new generation is uh, softer than they were. You know, yeah. back when I was a kid, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I would, I would say that you know, there's got to be a reason. For example, that the the most well-trained and well-provisioned um, uh, army in the history of warfare has such high rates of PTSD and that and. Um, I think we we clearly have just as tough of people in this generation as any generation that's ever come, but that doesn't necessarily speak to the percentages. We had um, one of our adjunct scholars, is retired Lieutenant General Mark
1: Hurtling, um, who-
0: I actually used to work for him. Did you?
1: Yeah. So, who played a central role in revamping um, initial entry training. Um, he's talked a lot about physical fitness and why it's a national security issue and talked about the percentage of military-age Americans who were physically fit uh, to serve in World War I than in World War II versus now, and it's been, it, there's been a declining share of that. Um, you haven't noticed, or do you, do you notice that play out in the way that, say, combatives like, sort of takes place within... Well, I've, I've,
0: I've noticed that there's a bifurcation of the culture. Some people are really into it and some people aren't. Uh, but I would say, you know, just think about that as a big-picture cultural question with all of the various aspects of our culture. So the generation that fought World War I or World War Two, they grew up on farms. And that means, for example, that they did hard physical labor all the time, they didn't have televisions to come home and watch. Their father probably worked with an eyesight of them so they could see what, it, you know, so they gained that work ethic from that person. But there's other things, too. You know, if you... Had to kill and skin and you know everything you ever ate. So what you did for dinner every night was go out and kill a chicken and eviscerate it. You know, so whenever you get on the battlefield and the first time you've ever seen something like that happen is your friend. Well, that's a whole lot more traumatic than if you you know grew up around you know all those other things. So I mean, I give you an example. I used I used to live in Africa, and when I lived in Africa, you know, for example in the united states if a, if a woman loses a child well it's it's devastating you know it's traumatic and it's, it's going to be traumatic no matter where you are but it's devastating and it's probably change your life and it's a really unusual thing but in africa in certain places if your child is born the wrong time of the year they're going to die because they have they get malaria and die so every woman has that happen to her so there's got to be something about the, the you know the nature of living in a successful first world society where you know, people have what, you know, jokingly we call first world problems, you know, like my and you know, on my hand controller on my video game is broken, woe is me, you know, as compared to places where people have real life and death problems, you know, where poor people starve to death, you know, versus poor people in America get fat because they get bad food rather than no food, right? So so there's gotta be something to that, you know. And and I would I would say it's kind of a it's kind of a big picture issue, but you know and i would say what general hurtling is in is undoubtedly right in what he says about you know how do we get kids training more if physically more physically fit how do we make sure that they eat right you know uh, uh, michelle obama's effort to get good food in the schools that's all that's all part of the same thing you know that gets caught up in politics but the politics of what are we why on earth are we teaching our children to be Lazy fat bodies who eat chips all day. You know, we don't need a generation of people with cheeto sting fingers. Well, we, you know, this country needs people to keep us free. Um, you know, and what I would say, like, look, this is as far as problems that the army has going. Um, I would say, you know, that we have a recruiting issue that a small percentage of the population is even available for service because we have those things. But our part is, how can we affect that with, with the Army and how can we affect it within the Army? And I think clearly we can, we can do a better job of building a warrior ethos within the Army. You know, imagine this. I was only in the Army for 22 years, but... Oh, I'm sorry, I was, I was in the service for 22 years. I was in the Marine Corps for four of those. But how many people have you met or heard of who were soldiers who, you know, as of 2010, 12, something like that, had never been to the war zone. Well, if, if you get orders to go to the war zone or your unit is going to the war zone and you don't go, you're trying to get out of it for whatever reason, it's because you don't have the warrior ethos. You know, how, imagine the days before we had radios and television and all that stuff. You know, how did soldiers who were on the march, how did they know when the battle was on? Well, they heard it, right? So there's a saying, a you know, soldier moves to the sound of the guns. That's what it means. They're shooting over there. Therefore, I need to go there. Because my friends are over there in the fight. And if you look at the you know, wars of the past, especially in wooded areas and whatnot, the the, the organization, the side that able to mass forces the quickest, they typically won because it's you know, they'll Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, get there first with the most. You know, that's really true, and they didn't have radios to tell everybody. So how did you do it? Well, you needed a warrior ethos within your unit who who knew their friends were in battle. Sounds so, like
1: what you're talking about is unit cohesion. How does how, I'm I'm curious if you found that combative training plays a role in fostering that as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it can be central. It can be a. The, it can be the most valuable tool we have, um, to to create a culture that demands of each other that we be warriors. There's more aspects to it than just combatives, but you know, can you? So when the so so when it got to be you know 2013 or 14, and we had been at war for a decade, and there were still people running around the army who, well, there's some people who've been around who had five years in combat. Well, then there are some other ones who had none. You know, how do you get to be that person? It's kind of hard to imagine that you, that the army. You know, that we need those people. <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine that we need those people. It should be the Uh, we need you to go to war right now. Uh, I I, know I have something very important to do that I can't go to war right now. Well, then fine. Maybe you'll find another job someplace because the Army doesn't need you. What about small unit cohesion? You know, when you've got... um, I've heard you talk about
1: sort of, you know, as soon as one or two or three people kind of break under the stress of combat that it creates a sort of cascade effect. And in order to keep that from happening, how does combatants play into that?
0: So combatives comes into making that unit that that uh, uh, surface tension stronger and pointing in the right direction. Because <clears throat> so m- imagine the once again the 507th maintenance unit story, okay? So what sort of unit cohesion did they have when the fight started, when none of them even thought they would be in a fight? So if they went into that knowing that they might be the ones in a fight and had done some training to be able to be ready for the fight, don't you think it would have affected their you know, cohesion? So the more realistic we can make that training, the more beer we can add into it. You know, let's, let's Like I said, let's not make any bones about it. You cannot build warriors if you're not doing anything scary in the training. You do not build warriors at the rifle range. Nothing is scary there. Is combative, can it be scary? Yeah, and you have to, I mean, imagine, why do we make people here at West Point do boxing? Because at the end of the day, it's scary. You know, there's a gladiator aspect of it to it. Whenever you're stepping into that ring, it's not much different than stepping through that door. You You know what the difference between a tennis match and a boxing match is? At the end of the day, somebody in that boxing match is getting their butt kicked. And so that's a whole different thing than losing. And so, overcoming that overcoming that's actual physical fear. You can go up and watch the plebes here and, and see them in the act of overcoming their fears in those boxing rings, and that is valuable, valuable. I mean imagine why do you suppose that we have people in basic training all around the army repel what percentage of soldiers in their active career ever repel you know off of a cliff or out of a helicopter or something like that or you know operationally well that number is really small i i, I was you know with four years in the infantry in the marine corps and, and 18 or 19 in the army in the ranger regiment most of it you know i'm not sure that i actually repelled a single time operationally maybe maybe i'm forgetting about something but i can't remember it with that being said every basic trainee pretty much does that and they have well why well because it's scary you know why do we send how many thousand soldiers a year go through airborne training when compared to how many actually use an airborne assault to infiltrate behind enemy lines and that percentage is way off but does that mean that the training is not valuable? no because jumping out of planes is scary and that's valuable it's it's almost exactly the same thing to go out the door of a flying airplane that it is to stack on a door and run into a into a building full of bad guys. It's just different by degrees.
1: It would be, I think, ideal but also virtually impossible. if you could have every single soldier in the army trained to a level of proficiency where they're a black belt in, in this particular fighting discipline, um, that's clearly not going to happen. So what would be the goal? What level of profi- what do you want each what, what would be
0: ideal? What, what do you want each soldier to be able to do? Well, let's start by the, what what the need is. Um, who you end up fighting, you just need to be better than them. You know, it's the old it's the old joke. When the bear's chasing us, I don't necessarily need to be faster than a bear. I just need to be faster than you, right? So, <laughs> so it's the same thing. I don't need I don't necessarily have to be the world champion. You know, of the you know mixed martial arts or something. I just need to be better than this person I'm fighting. So what that means is uh, we need to get them fighting so they will start getting some skill. And and the truth is, it is completely realistic to be able to say that we would be able to train every soldier in the U.S. Army to be a proficient fighter. It's 100% realistic. So just think about this. When you go watch, and I don't mean to compare soldiers to UFC fighters, but if you go watch mixed martial arts fighters, are they fit? Well, yes, they're supremely fit. So what do they do to get that way? Well, they mostly... Train for fighting. If you want to be a good swimmer, you got to get in the pool, right? If you want to be a good fighter, you got to fight people, right? So they mostly train for fighting. So all the time that we spend doing PT, if we were doing stuff for fighting, everybody would be fit, and they would also be able to fight.
1: Well, Matt, thanks very much. I think we'll leave it at that. Um, This has been uh, a privilege to talk to you, and thanks for sharing some of your thoughts on this.
0: All right, good to be here anytime.
1: Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, I just want to remind you that if you're not already doing so, you can follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a really easy way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.